0: Hey, this is Denny Tedesco, the director of The Wrecking Crew and Media Family,
1: and you are listening to Robert Miller and his Follow Your Dream podcast.
0: Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast, ranked number one in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Tony Klinger, international award-winning filmmaker and author. He's made films with The Who. Lee Marvin, Roger Moore, Deep Purple, and others. He began his career as the assistant director on The Avengers, starring Patrick McNee and Diana Rigg. I loved her and I loved that series. He's currently working on a new edition of his book, Who Knows, The Making of a Rock and Roll Movie, and a new documentary or two. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of each episode. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen the live recording of my reimagined version of the Who's I Can't Explain. This was a no-brainer for me considering that Tony made the definitive movie about The Who. So, Tony Klinger, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
1: Thank you so much. It's a great intro. I actually worked on The Avengers when it was Linda Thorson, not Diana Rigg, as the co-star with Patrick Whitney I missed Diana Rigg. I would have liked to work with her, but it was actually the one after that.
0: All right. I'll forgive you for that. But, you know, now that you mentioned it, one of the other ladies that starred in that series was one of my favorite actresses, Honor Blackman. Did you happen to work with her as well?
1: No, I never did. I met her a few times uh, at social kind of engagements. And she was just a beautiful woman and a very lovely person too.
0: Yes. And she will always go down in history as being in uh, Goldfinger. And as Sean Connery used to pronounce her name there, Pussy Galore. Yeah. <laughs> I always loved
1: it. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was delightful and especially painted gold. So
0: what was it like? Let's start with that. Tell me about the Avengers. What was it like for you to work there?
1: Well, I loved it. It was my first big job. Uh, I'd been working on training films in the Ministry of Defense as a BBC assistant, uh, all kinds of other kind of jobs as a gopher, really, and moving up the ranks. And when I got to the Avengers, uh, that was my big opportunity to work on what we could call high-end television. And basically, our real bosses were out of ABC television in New York. They weren't English bosses. And so I got to work with the American experience, which was kind of uh, different, because we were working one way, the budgets suddenly were bigger, uh, the time frames were quicker, uh, and it was it got sharp. Uh, and I enjoyed that, and it was... Very challenging, and they were wonderful to me. I mean, the people at the stars were really supportive. I was a kid, didn't know really anything, except Patrick Mcnee once said to me, he says, have you got running shoes on? And I went, what do you mean? He says, well, you're the runner. I said, yeah. He said, whenever they want to see you, they want to see you running. He says, when you get off around the corner, you can start walking. And I learned a big lesson. <laughs> it's what happens in front of the camera that was important, the airline. and once when they did something bad to me, he he really supported me. He was he was a good guy.
0: That's nice to hear. I mean, it was a long-running series, and it was a very big series in the United States. Was it as big in
1: in, in England as it was in the US? Huge. It was an iconic series. It really was, of its day, the, the biggest series. It was, I think, the, the most successful at the time. And it was great fun to work. But when you're working on a series like that, and I guess this is only any open series, you kind of get to a position where everybody on the team kind of knows what's happening, and you could take a bit out of script number 15 and script number 32, and you mushed them together, and that became episode 33. And, and <laughs> the audience might not have known that, but we kind of did. And so you get into a kind of rote position, and so your excitement was... Let me do the third unit and I can do a bit of action and let me do this and I can do a bit of that. And so it became really a learning experience. It was the best film school in the world.
0: I imagine. I really can. All right. So you went on to make this iconic film with The Who one of my favorite you know, rock and roll movies of all time. When I found out that you were the director and that you were going to be on this podcast, I was really excited about that because I love The Who, particularly the early Who that is portrayed in that movie. Tell us about your relationship with them. Tell me about how you made that movie.
1: Well, I first I should address the thought that I was the producer, not the director. However, I did direct some bits of it. Um, and what happened was... I was originally hired to direct it. And then I was hired by the Daughtry section of the band and the management. And it turned out that they had, uh, Pete Townsend had been, well, let's say, under the weather someplace in America and had signed a contract for another young man. I was only in my twenties. This guy was younger than me. Uh, And they'd signed a contract, he'd signed a contract for him to direct whenever they made a movie. So the, both of us were within we the same contract.
0: Yeah, dueling directors is what you're saying.
1: Well, they they locked us in a room in Pinewood Film Studios and said whoever comes out alive is the director. The other guy could be the producer. And <laughs> I, had, I actually think I would have won the fight, but I said I don't want to have a fight. And so we kind of worked out a compromise. And so a guy called Jeff Stein, he directed it. He came out of Poughkeepsie, New York State, and I was the producer. And it was <laughs> my. I have a, the next edition of my book about that. It called Who Knows, is uh, about the making of that film because it's an object lesson in how not to make a film. It was. <laughs> it, it was. If I said the other thing was a learning experience, this was a real learning experience. It was a warfare. It was open warfare. In what sense? What do you mean by open warfare? What happened was, and as everybody knows who knows anything about the Who, at that time in their careers, Townsend and Tree both saw themselves as the boss, as it were. Um, and there was also the boss that was Bill Kirbishley, who was a pretty tough guy. And so you had, like, you Kerbishley know, trying to make it work for the band, like the fifth member of the band in management terms. And then there was Townsend, who who kind of didn't talk to anybody he didn't want to talk to, and Daughtry, who'd picked me because I'd done some work for him. And so it was, if I was the guy from him, I couldn't be any good to him and vice versa, the other way around for Stein. And so it was going in, like set up for a war. And when we were setting the film up, I went to the States and we got offers from about five, I think, of the major companies who wanted to invest in the film. I came back and said, look, we got the money from five different sources, who do you want me to pick? And the management turned around and so said, it's going to be that good world finance." it. <laughs> <laughs> And that is always a problem. The reason that's a problem is because if you the subject of the film is the financier of the film, then you have got a real ego problem.
0: Yeah, they want it their way, right?
1: Oh yeah. And each one of them had their own set of ideas. So we managed to get over that in the filming terms. But when it came to like the sound balance of the you know the recordings that we were going to do, because we recreated the sounds, you know, really, they were not the original sounds. When we did that, I remember sitting there. What first thing I remember was we sitting there, and I saw they had stopwatches in their hands. And I was like, What are you doing? You know, for the viewing. And it was they were measuring how long screen time each one of them had. And oh they had to adjust it so it was kind of equalized. And then during the recording of the sound and the audio stuff, that this you understand as a musician, each one would say, I, The bass guitar, you can't hear it. And we need to put that up and get rid of his vocals. And then the guy with the vocals and so on around. And we spent, I think we did like nine months, nine months in sound studios here in America.
0: Oh my God.
1: And it was a total nightmare and and a very expensive nightmare, as you can imagine. Um, So it was a very incredible experience. Anybody that's going into the movie or music industries, the business side of it and the creative side of it as well, should read that book, not just because it gets me money, although that's nice no, but that's not a bad thing <laughs> my, my wife is happy with that but it, what it does is it tells you exactly what can happen I I tried to resign from that film seven times saying <laughs> so, you got a contract and then when I came back they said you can't come to the set and then I said but then why did you want me here <laughs> and it was, it was like a some kind of waking nightmare but the results are terrific. It's uh, an so interesting thing. I don't know about your you know, creative process. It's really interesting that so I've been on some films that were really a pleasure to make, and the film was bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've been on films where everybody wanted to kill each other, and the film comes out and it's really good. It can be a classic.
0: Well, maybe it's because that emotion, that intensity, got caught on film.
1: Maybe I, I think there has to be a that has to be a point because I, you know, I think that it consistently happens. I don't think I've ever been on a film, and I've been on a lot of films, I don't think I've ever been on one where everything was perfect and the film came out perfect. And as a result of my, like, I, I kind of had an inhibition. For 35, 40 years, I never went to see the first public screening, I never went to a party, I never went to any of that, until somebody said, you've got to go, and it made me. And then I kind of thought, actually, I quite enjoy this.
0: <laughs> you know, that's an interesting point that you're raising, because there are a lot of filmmakers and artists in general that once they finish the project, they don't want to have anything to do with it in the sense of, you know, continuing to go back, watch it, listen to it, et cetera.
1: Are you one of those people? I was definitely one of those people. And even now when my, I got films currently stuff going out, I kind of, I have to admit this, I'll be in at the beginning of the screening, and then I'm gone, and then I come back after a few drinks at the end of the screening.
0: Is that because you're afraid of the reaction, or is there another reason?
1: No, because I I once interviewed Charlton Heston, and he said it right. Art, by definition, is imperfectible, and you know that there's faults there and that you wish you could have changed it, and it's too late. It's done, and you've got to put it behind you and move on. I find it much more satisfying as a novelist when I write one of my novels, I find that satisfying because I can completely control that. And if it's wrong, it's me. And if it's right, it's me. But it's me talking direct to you or whoever the reader is. Whereas with a film, it becomes, especially if you're talking about a bigger film, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of people involved. And so your vision, your creative vision, by definition, is going to get diluted depending on how much people interfere with you. And you can't do it any other way, because it's a team effort, whereas if you're doing a solo thing, then it's you, it's genuinely you, so your your wishes may be the same creatively, but the outcome is going to be very different sometimes by fluke or luck or the right combination of chemistry, it comes out right because it just worked as a team that you know and it's it's if you look at sports, it's a great example you the best players say in the world right now play for a team in Paris called Paris Saint-Germain. They've got the best players in the world, best three forwards in the world. Yet they just got knocked out by by a team that doesn't have anybody like that good, but Bayern Munich. And they got knocked out because that's a team, whereas they are great individuals.
0: They didn't play as a team. You know, it's interesting what you're saying because I relate to it Doing this podcast, it's a solo situation for me. I'm talking one-on-one with somebody. I'm controlling the environment with my guest and with the editing process. Yet, when I make music and I have a band, I've got all these other people that I've got to factor into the creative process. And sometimes that's the hardest part of the whole thing, okay? Absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said to my musicians, all I want you to do is show up on time and prepared. OK, yes, because yes. otherwise it starts to go awry right there. But the other thing that is nice about the creative process with more than one person is that things happen that are unexpected, right? And if you capture that magic in a bottle, it's a wonderful experience, isn't it?
1: Oh, it, could, it could be fantastic. I was telling somebody a story against myself because I was a dumbass idiot kid. And and I, I was made my first professional film when I was 18. And and I I made it and I had a it was a documentary about the Cannes Film Festival called the Festival Game, which people still play. And it was 1960 something, 67, 68, 69, something like that. And when I finished it, I showed it to my old man who was a film producer, a great film producer, and I showed it to him. He says, it's a really good film. You won't get any play dates. I went, what do you mean? It's really good. He just said it was good. He said, the guy who's the main booker for the cinema chain you need to go to hates rock music, and you've got rock music on your score. You're going to have to take that off. I said, what are you talking about? That's it's a great score. And he said, they won't want to eat. I said, well, what does he like? He said, he likes jazz. I said, jazz? I didn't know nothing about jazz. I said, what am I supposed to do? He said, you need to go and get a jazz score and put a jazz score on it. I went, that's not going to work. He said, either that or your film's never going to get played. So I said, where do I go? He said, there's a jazz club down the street called Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. man called Ronnie Scott, famous guy. And he said, you go down to Ronnie Scott and tell him I sent you and see if he could help you with some kind of jazz score. So I go down there. I don't know nothing about jazz or who Ronnie Scott is. Just I thought it was just his club. Didn't know he played. And so I tell him my story. And he says, "What? Well, so you want me to play something for you? I went, well, not, you don't have to do it. <laughs> because I thought there some other guys around the back. He said, well, I can do it. How much money you got? And I had like 500 pounds. I said, I got 500 pounds. He said, 500 pounds? I said, yeah. I said, but I need a band and everything. He said, oh shit. And he said, And he said, okay. I said, well, we like rehearsal. You're going to play me something first? He said, no. He said, I'm just going to turn up, we'll do something. And he came with Pete King, Ronnie Scott, and the band. And they came to the studio and they start playing live to the thing. And it was terrific. But I was signaling him from the booth. I'm like 18 years old, right? I've never had a jazz thing in my life, That's signaling code. And he's going, What, what do you, what do you, uh, can I swear on this? Or maybe not. What do you effing want? And I said, I oh, want you need to go faster. He says, Oh, so Tony here is going to be conducting this. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew nothing. And I came out and I conducted the Ronnie Scott Band. <laughs>
0: Good for you. Hi everybody, this is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States, so I'm playing my song Spring Dance underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth, and I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience, and of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode. And the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. You know, you're describing, though, there's the creative part of filmmaking and the arts, and then there's the business part. I just had on the show the fellow that directed and produced the documentary, The Wrecking Crew. Okay. This is Denny Tedesco. This is all about the West Coast group of studio musicians that, you know, made so many hits. And he was describing how difficult it was to get that film made and to get it financed and then to actually you know, bring it into the, the theatres or into the streaming services. What's your experience with the difference between the creative side and the business side?
1: Well, I think you have to think of it this way around because he's right. I mean, it's really difficult. If it was easy, then more people would do it. I think you have to think of it. And I was trained this way because I used to watch my dad. And he would always say, first find out, is there a market for this? Can you can you find a place where this could go? An audience, can you find an audience for this thing? And then you have to become able to convince other people to give you the money to get you, enable you to do that. And yeah, sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes you have to finagle. Sometimes you have to be clever. But there's always a way. If, it's, if you're passionate about it and it's really good and it has an audience, then it's just, you have to untie that knot. There is a way. But yeah, and you have to have positive thinking because you can't be stopped. You, you, if you, if you allow yourself to be stopped, then you're never going to do it, because there's always going to be a million people going to say no, and no, it doesn't work, and no, I've heard all of that before. I, every one of the best things I ever made, were when somebody said, oh, "I think I've seen something like that." Oh, that's the same as so and so, and it's not true. Don't get fooled by that. It's not true, because every, it, like the festival game, I remember people telling me. Yeah, I'm getting you play dates in England. We got 1,400 play dates in a little country called England. Uh, it was the second most played documentary in cinema history in England. And and that was the film everybody said, oh, I think I've seen that before. And they hadn't. You know,
0: ironically, right now, if you just take a, a a shot of what's happening in the marketplace, for filmmakers, I think that the market is probably better than it's ever been because of all the different streaming services that are out there that are acquiring property. Whereas on the music side, everything has focused into Spotify, and the streaming services for music makes it an awful experience for musicians. But the filmmakers, I think, have a better deal
1: right now. Do you agree? I think we have a better possibility of a deal right now. I'll tell you, there's kind of two answers to that question. I did a music video a couple of years ago for some guys from Hanoi Rocks and all those bands put together. And one of them, a guy from Denmark, said to me, they had 5 million views or something that week. I said, well, that's great. you know. He said, yeah, we made $500. <laughs> uh,
2: oh,
1: Jesus, that's terrible. and And... That is an awful look at how the music industry has gone and it, it's got to be live, and it's got to be 360-degree deals and that kind of thing. Whereas the movie industry, what you say is absolutely true. The, but the, the trouble is that the pie didn't get any bigger, the slices got smaller. And so you, you get, you know, you have to do a deal nowadays, you have to have 23 deals for different places around the world, or one big company. So if you look at, for example, the production industry in the UK last year, the figures: there was 6.2 billion pounds, that's like $8 billion, spent on production in the UK, of which only 160 million, 170 million, was spent on indie production. So that means that that shrunk by 30%, while the other part grew by 25%. So it's the big boys getting bigger and the small boys getting smaller. And so you have to think, how, how can I form alliances with those people? And the bad thing is that nowadays it's kind of like it was with network television in America. I remember when I used to live there in Los Angeles, that we couldn't get direct to the networks. We had to go through an approved supplier because they knew they could deliver and they were the right kind of people. They weren't going to do so crazy. And that's what's happened now with the big streaming companies. It's the same, it's the same story there are, I think, more opportunities. And if you put it in raw numbers, I think there's a bigger production industry now well, worldwide than there has ever been. I think I think we're living in the golden age.
0: I think you're right about that. But you can't go direct to Amazon or Netflix, can you?
1: You can, but you won't get anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to go through a, a door that is marked, you know, these are our preferred suppliers. And... I kind of, I do kind of understand it, and you have to kind of understand. Well, that's because they they want to control their budgets. I I I I'll do just a quick aside here. That I was talking to somebody in that side of the industry uh, two days ago, and they said to me, "Did you know?" And I won't name the major major streamer that was involved. They don't have any cost reports. They had no cost reports, and the person had has been put in to find out what the hell was happening. Now, how can you run a thing like that, productions like that, that size, gigantic, and not have daily cost reports Would just somebody didn't put it in place? And, and I can understand suppliers going, Hee-hee-hee. no one's found out yet that we're just doing stuff. And, and that's crazy.
0: You know, it, I think a lot of it is because take Netflix, for example. In a sense, they create this enormous budget for acquiring assets. But that's not the focus of their business. The focus of their business is getting more and more subscribers. That's what they care about. So I can understand how the guy at the top might be saying, I don't really care what you put on. Just keep putting stuff on there. As long as I get my increase in subscribers, I'm happy.
1: The people that originated this whole thing, basically, were the guys from Time Life that formed HBO. And they did that with uh, boxing, a championship boxing. They built an audience. They said, that's our lost leader. It doesn't matter what it costs. Because, and I remember I I went first went there to New York when I was a, I was a kid, and they had four guys in an office, and they, I won't say their names either. There were four guys in an office in a big building, and they said, and we're going to do this thing. It's called home box Office, and we're going to make X billions of dollars a year. And we were, we were sitting there thinking, schmuckos, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's like never, ever. And they, they were right, and we were wrong. And in England, and Europe, they did the same thing with soccer. With it, Sky, people did that. Murdoch did that. Same thing. So it doesn't matter what it costs us to buy the premiership football, because that will get us subscribers. And that's the point. They have to keep putting out new material, or they start losing subscribers. Right. And then they had it all their own way for a long time, Netflix. And then what's happened? naturally, is the people that used to be their suppliers said, hey, why are we doing it through them? Why don't we do it? And so now there's lots of competition. And so, for example, our last film, uh, The Man Who Got Carter, that went out in America on 20-something platforms. And the one platform we didn't bother doing a deal with was Netflix. Interesting. Because we don't need them, you know, and the deal didn't sue us. And so, you know, I think that that... <laughs> remember my mom, when she used to watch cowboy films when we were kids on television, she used to look at them and she said, same men, different hats. <laughs> <laughs> same kind of things going on.
0: It's true. But, you know, historically, the creative things in America, the TV shows and the movies, that was our America's global entree to the world, okay? Every time I used to travel abroad, the same shows, the same movies, were being played all around the world. American culture was being infused everywhere, and I'm sure that happened
1: in England. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, the only two countries in the world who are net exporters of culture are UK and USA. You know, and and that's I think that's both because they punch above their weight in terms of relevance culturally. And and B, because it's an English language, and most people, as a second language, speak English. And so that, that's, that's been maintained.
0: I said to you before we started this that, you know, this podcast is now going out to 200 countries, which is accurate. The crazy thing is, and I think I've spoken about this maybe once before, if you take a look at the top 10 countries And again, I had nothing to do with this. This is just the power of the Internet. Well, number one is the United States, Canada, Australia, the U.K., they're at the top. But the next one on the list, you would never guess. It's Iran. 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 And the only explanation I have for it is that, as we were just saying, they were a very cultured, educated people before the dictators took over that country. And I think that they are looking for the kind of culture that they used to have at their fingertips. They're reaching out for it, and they can get it via the Internet.
1: I think that's true, and I think you're absolutely right about Iranian people and culture and history, which is magnificent. Uh, And and we've got to look at what's happening there now as a a terrible blip because uh, some awful people run the place. But I think the people don't change. The nature of the people doesn't change, and I think that yeah. they, they, they it it kind of seeps into places in a funny way. I remember Albania when it was like a real communist, Marxist kind of place. Their biggest star was a comedian from England who was like a did pratfalls and things. He did the Night like, the Radio Minsky's, normal wisdom, and he was it was like a, a he'd re, already out of favor in England from many years ago. And there, he was an absolute superstar, because he was the only thing that the regime had allowed to be seen. His uncle must have run the country or something. (laughs) Well, Jerry Lewis had the same effect in France. They gave him the Legion d'honneur in France. He was like the biggest thing. You know, that seeps into different ways and different cultures. Um, And I I think, kind of in reflection, I, I thought the answer was going to be China that it's going to be the Chinese with the next biggest market for you. But in terms of that's really a surprising thing that the Iranians are.
0: Yeah, it's you just never know in, in this world. But I think it's pretty neat that, again, you put something up on the Internet, whether it goes on YouTube or one of the streaming services or whatever, and things just happen. It just takes off if it's if it's any good, I guess. And, you know, I I love it. I love the fact that this is happening all around the world and in places, as you just alluded to, that n- English is not the first language.
1: It's, it's the second language thing you've got to get. And and things that you can't imagine, like we just did this film, Dirty, Sexy, and Totally Iconic, about my dad's film, since 50th anniversary plus COVID, called Get Carter with Michael Mention who
0: Mention who your dad was. My dad
1: was Michael Kringer, who did the first two Polanski English language films repulsion and cul-de-sac he did uh, get film get cartridge just mentioned alluded to and and 40 50 other films top top guy yeah and he was the most successful film producer in the uk for about 15 years running in the 70s and early 80s and when we look back on on some of those things and we uh, we were talking to somebody at the bbc because they seem to know they think they know everything and they said to me, they said, but you're making a film about Get Carter, and it's 52 years ago. This is a kid saying it to me, right? And I said, yeah. I said, he said, well, you know, like, that, that does young people know anything about it? And I looked, as I was talking to him on Google, or not Google, one of the search things, at, you know, what's there about Get Carter? Because so, I could dispute with him. And I, I looked very quickly, and it was, I thought it said 500 million uh, threads on it, 500 million and so Ted said that to him, and he phoned me back about two hours later. He said, you lied to me. And I said, oh, I must have got the noughts wrong He said, it's 658 million. And, you know, and it's literally, if something happens like that, something hits the zeitgeist, it, it hits the minds and the hearts of people, they can, they'll kill for it. They're, it becomes something bigger than you could ever imagine, or you could, you could never intend that to happen. You, my, my dad when he was making the film thought yeah, it's a good film he, he didn't think it was his best film he thought Carl Dersack was his best film um, with Polanski um, but the one that people take to was that film and when I started to do it it was just before uh, Covid was starting my, my film about it with Dirty Sexy and one night and I luckily was filming this while we were, it was happening in case something happened and I was sitting there and I think you know what you know should I test this? Should I really test it myself, like directly? And so I put on like LinkedIn. I think if, if does anybody remember the film Get Carter, if you did, just say yes. And did you like it? Yes or no? And there were thousands of responses overnight. When I came back in the morning, <laughs> it was like thousands of people. I actually got this on film. It actually happened live. And you can't, you can't know why that's going to happen. You can't predict that.
0: Exactly. It's like you were saying, when you put out a new film, you don't know what the reaction is going to be until it's out there, okay? And I put out an album recently, it's got 10 new songs on it. I don't know which song, if any, is going to be taken to heart by the public, but you get the answer ultimately, okay? It comes back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. We haven't even gotten to all the things that you're probably doing right now. So we'll have to have you back for a part two, okay? Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) We have been speaking here with Tony Klinger, who is a terrific um, filmmaker and author and has has done so many things. It's been such a wonderful experience to have you on. I want to thank you so much for doing the podcast with me.
1: Thank you, indeed.
0: All right, we're going to listen now to the song that started out this episode. It's my version of The Who's I Can't Explain, that it was recorded live in Serbia. And I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at Follow Your Dream dot com. And you can hear more from his band at Project Grand dot com and at the PGSstore.com.